Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Coltside Radio's Late Night Movie. Enjoy as your two glorious hosts, Carl Caper and Stephen M. Ronquillo, bring you the best in cinematic quality and rarity and lost gems that you should see more. So, let's get this show started. And tonight, feature is... A belly, definition one, another name for stomach, gut. Belly, definition two, ego. His belly is very big, isn't it? Find out what both of them mean when we watch Peter Greenway's gnarly late 80s classic with Brian Dennehy, The Belly of an Architect. Right. On the Cold Side Radio's Late Night Movie. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. And yes, both definitions will come into play. Isn't that right, Tony Strauss? Oh, absolutely. And hello yep, to this Carl, movie is one big of the skinniest men I know, but has one of the biggest bellies I know. So, hello, <laughs> Carl. Well, let me put it this way. I don't think my belly is big, but certainly my my food intake is, so there you go. (laughs) I think he meant another definition of belly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I was thinking pork belly, actually, but that's beside the point. Mm. (laughs) Yes, this is, we're delving into Peter Greenway. One, because Brian Dennehy died, and this is pretty much one of the few theatrical roles, lead roles that he got that wasn't an action bang-bang shoot-em-up. Yep. Very true. And, and plus, it was one, it was, 90s coming up it was soon. The it's film. almost time for the 90s nostalgia kicked in. And once you get to 89-90, Greenway's name's going to come up, especially if you look in the history of film censorship. But he had like three or four films before he made history over here in the history of film censorship. There was, uh, well, we'll get into that once the movie starts. And we are right at the beginning of the movie. You can get this free on Amazon Prime or just buy the DVD or Blu-ray. Well, if you watch this with us and you love the movie and you watch the movie and you love it, get the Blu-ray and DVD. It'll encourage to get more of Greenway stuff out. Absolutely. And Got to give us a countdown, Steve. Yeah. I know I'm getting a little ready. And here we go in 5 4 3 2 1 0 Go. Okay, that's the And the lion, she shall roar. (laughs) This movie pretty much went straight to VHS in the U.S. Because Brian Dennehy was a big rental star after FX and FX2 and First Blood. Yeah. But the company did not know what the hell they had on their hands. 
No, they really didn't. And it was it, the only reason this movie really got any kind of uh, American release theatrically was because of the huge success of The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. And although this film was made before it and released internationally before it, um, the, the the two uh, Greenaway films, uh, Drowning by Numbers and, and Belly of an Architect, did get a limited theatrical run because The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover was so successful in the U.S., and we have the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover to thank for basically making Greenaway known in America. Now, we're seeing on screen right here a huge bit of foreshadowing. Um, the movie opens, as you see, uh, Cracklight and Louisa, his wife, are making love on the train as they enter Rome. And we learn later that they are conceiving a child right now. And as they are conceiving a child, we see the images of, of graveyards and headstones ultimately foreshadowing the fact that this movie is about the death of this person. So it opens with a conception and ends with a death. And uh, this is a very symmetrical film, both visually and structurally. And a lot of the things in the first half of the film are repeated and echoed in different ways for different meanings in the second half of the film. And this is well, the first example of that. standard, like uh, murder by numbers. Every time there's a murder, you have to look, but the, mur- but the numbers are hidden in the background. Are you talking drowning by numbers? Yeah, drowning by numbers. The, mur- the numbers are hidden in the background of the movie. Yeah, in many cases. There is a sequential puzzle to put together in Drowning by Numbers. The the physical numbers 1 through 100 all appear on screen in different ways, sometimes very, very subtly, other times very, very in your face. So, yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things about Peter Greenaway is his structuralism. And as we're opening this film, we are seeing the structures of, of Rome, and there are eight prominent uh, famous Roman pieces of architecture that are ultimately the centerpieces of this film. And they're, they're tied together in, a, in multiple ways. Um, this film is about uh, a very, uh, or sorry, the obsession of this film. The, the main character's obsession is with an architect, a French architect known as Boulet, who died in, uh, or he died in 1799, and he was a very ambitious structuralist um, uh, architect who his greatest works are considered to be, have, have, were, were on paper and never realized. There was only a handful of buildings that were built by Etienne Louis, uh, Louis Boulet in his lifetime, and the the invented character, the architect Storley Cracklight, played by Brian Dennehy, is kind of an interesting parallel to that. A guy who was obsessed with architecture and design, but never really realized much in his life. So what we have left to Boulay are mostly his drawings. And interestingly, 
this uh, this dome cake right here is based on a boulet, a series of boulet drawings of a uh, of an intended project to to honor Isaac Newton, and it was never actually built, although uh, a smaller version of it was was influenced, or a smaller version of it was built that that was influenced by Boulet's designs. And it's it's been noted that Boulet was I don't know um, kind of impassionate, and he had these grand ideas, but uh, they were never as impressive as Boulet thought they were. So there there are almost these grand ideas that turn out to be disappointments, and. If you look at a lot of Boulet's drawings, you'll see that he really was obsessed with basic shapes. The cone, the the column, the dome, the cube, things like that. And it was his conceit that you could build a utopia by using very simple shapes to design buildings. Um, and but, that really is an obsession of... Uh, Greenways, which is creating, because uh, one of his earlier films for this was you didn't mention was the Drop Man, the the Draft Man's contract. Yes. And the uh, lead male in uh, Drowning by Numbers was an artist. Mm-hmm. And in the Cook the Feast, the wife and his lover. The lover is a bibliophile. Who is truly yes. obsessed by books? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, ultimately, I mean, it... take a look at any of, of 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 Greenway's films, and I'm not as familiar as, as Tony or you, but it's all about obsession. And even Greenway himself has this obsession about order, about structure. You can see it all the way through his films. He's very much a classicist. Yes, and interestingly, he's also a critical classicist. Because Greenaway has an obsession with lists and and uh, principal organizations, but he also, at the same time, acknowledges the fact that any list you make is strange and arbitrary. Like if you alphabetize something, uh, a series of items, it makes no sense to group them together simply because of of the words used to describe them. So. While he is, on one hand, obsessed with list-making, he also finds it fascinating that lists are also very arbitrary. Well, look at his first film, uh, The Falls. It's about an unknown, unforeseen incident, and it's about a list of uh, people and just people telling their views of the incident without describing what, where, when, and how the incident happened. Right, and when you when you get down to the heart of it, uh, The Falls, which is a three-hour movie of different vignettes about people whose last names happen to begin with the letters F-A-L-L, um, it's actually a science fiction film. And it it is about the aftermath of the V-U-E, the violent unknown event, that has altered the lives of these people, uh, causing them to identify greatly with birds, uh, Peter Greenaway's father was a was an amateur ornithologist, and uh, 
So Peter Greenaway grew up with a father who was obsessed with birds and making lists about birds. So that plays very heavily into The Falls and to some degree a lot of his other films. But uh, it wasn't until his first, what is considered his first feature, even though The Falls was definitely feature length, The Draftsman's Contract, uh, Peter Greenaway often jokes that that, that, uh, The Draftsman's Contract was the first film he made in which human beings actually spoke directly to one another. Um, because he's so obsessed with art uh, and and structure and symmetry, there there is a lot of uh, dispassionate approach to to the human condition, even though he's obsessed with it, especially with regards to you know the primary topics of sex and death and food, of course, in between. Um, and however, this movie, what that is, is Ed and Two Knots. Absolutely, which he considers to be his greatest accomplishment to date, and it's fully understandable because it is really a film that is structured like the stages of not only human evolution but also the stages of life, from birth to death. Now, this is. We are right now at the uh, at the Pantheon restaurant as uh, the people are applauding here, and it's it's really interesting as you watch this film to view the to view it through the idealized uh, pre- presentation of Greenaway's camera, well, and technically the brilliant cinematographer Sasha Vierney who shot the film. If I've never been to Rome, but Anyone who has seen enough footage of Rome knows that it is one of the most burdened by tourism places you can ever see. The places, you know, all these great ancient buildings are just swarming with tourists and kiosks and merchants and people selling things. But when you watch this film, he has taken all of that out of the frame. So you're looking at this interestingly idealized version of Rome itself in which tourists are not really a thing even though the the items for tourists exist in the film. Like uh, throughout the film, Storley Cracklight is constantly stealing postcards, which are for the tourist trade. But at the same time, while there's all these things set up for tourists, you don't actually see tourists in the film. And well, it's... it's uh... The restaurant's name. That's something for tourists. The Pantheon Restaurant. You get the same. Absolutely. You got both ancient architecture while going to a restaurant that probably serves shitty food. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Overpriced shitty food. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, by presenting the film like devoid of tourists until the very end, um, he's kind of indicating the blindness of the main character. And if you look on on one level of this film, it kind of seems like just this this architect who loves his work is bamboozled by forces around him and becomes a tragedy of him as a victim. But when you delve deeper deeper into the goings on and really watch Storley Cracklight's behavior, it's almost like he's given every opportunity to prevent his own demise, but his obsession 
will not let that happen. He could have stopped this tragedy from occurring, but instead yes. of sorry, what? Yes, he could have stopped that, but his blind ego. Right. Exactly, and that's where the your earlier definition of egoism comes into play because he he has this wife that he loves and clearly loves him that he ignores first at first he ignores her for over his obsession with Boulet and and the uh the exhibition that he's got going here in Rome which is really interesting cuz Boulet never visited Rome he's said to have been influenced by it and the eighth building featured in this film is uh the only one that was made after Boulet's death and and that is the EUR building also known as the typewriter building um or the Mussolini building and there is speculation that the construction of it uh it was built in 1911 um was was actually influenced by Boulet, but that's there's there's some speculation to that, and it's not 100% proven because Boulet was not a very well-known guy. Yeah. Well, there's always speculation going on, you know. When it comes to architectural yeah. history, I mean, you will see even worse than some film fans, people fighting over... Who created what? Who was the best at what? You know. Right. And, you know, it's kind of funny. While at the beginning of this film, Cracklight is very uh, confident and 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 uh, very bold and in his nature before you know before his fall begins. However, it's kind of ironic considering what's implied in the film is this guy has, uh, you know, designed his life to become an architect and at the same time neglected his own career in his obsession with Boulay, who, as he says in the film, he's been obsessed with since he was a kid. These are some of the Boulay drawings that he's going through right now. Um, I think it's interesting that... Greenway is obsessed with his with There's the typewriter. but no one in his movie ever comes out alive for being obsessed with their obsessions. Right, but that's very true. I mean, that's not unusual. Downfall. That's not unusual. You become obsessed with something, and it and it uh, <coughs> uh, just uh, destroys you. I mean, I mean, even yes. something simplistic as Golem. And, and, and you know, obsessed with the ring. Any obsession that you let overtake you is going to more than likely destroy you, unless it's final records. But that's a def- different story. <laughs> Speaking from personal well, experience, there, Carl. <laughs> yep. <laughs> now it, it's funny though because. You know, Greenaway has a strong, even though this film is a tragedy, and a lot of his films are, he has a really strong sense of humor about it. And even as Cracklight is setting up this big, supposedly important exhibition in Rome, 
the Romans are kind of laughing at him because, you know, this is a French architect, and the show is curated and run by this obsessive, not very well-known, not very accomplished American architect who has neglected his own career in favor of an obsession with another not very accomplished architect. And right. and during this time, his his life's goal, this exhibition of Boulay trying to bring the brilliance or what he sees as the brilliance of this architect to the world, he's letting his own life slip away in the process. Right. And right here, he's standing in front of the window that he will fall to his death from. And right now is the first moment where his uh, supposed assistant here on the left, Caspasian, is already moving in on his wife. And this is kind of an interesting shot here because here this, this old man comes up and puts his hand on her knee um, on this red couch. And, you know, you'll find out later this is a publicity stunt uh, set up by Caspasian. However, the shot is kind of interesting because uh, Louisa is on the couch flanked by, on one side by handsome youth and by one side uh, decrepit old age, but they're both predatory towards her. And you will notice they're sitting on a red couch. The, the, the color red plays a significant role in this film as almost the color of betrayal. So later on when Cracklight cheats on his wife, Almost in revenge and self-pity, he cheats on his wife with uh, Flavia, Caspasian's sister, the photographer. That's on a red couch. So the color red is something to pay attention to in this film, which is, as you see, largely uh, colored by whites and earth tones. Well, and if you want another film that deals with this, look at uh, Godard's Weekend. We have another failed artist who loses his wife to his producer because his work is more important to him than his work, life. What what film was that? Godard's Weekend, Weekend. the one with Jack Palance in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I've never actually seen that film. I'll have to check it out. And here he is, chowing down on figs, giant, giant uh, bowl of figs in the middle of the table, in the uh, Colosseum bowl. Go Again, get a napkin, uh, <laughs> Well, you know that's another thing uh, with Greenway is is there is an obsession with food. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's and you know the the very nature of the film or the very the very title of the film indicates an obsession with food. The belly. You know, right. the belly is where we where we fill our bodies with nourishment, and then it parses out that nourishment to the rest of our body. But in this film, it's his belly that eats him alive instead of nourishes him. Right. And he becomes obsessed with Augustus, and uh, the mausoleum of Augustus was the first prominent building featured in the in the in the movie, and. He later on becomes obsessed with the stomach of a statue of Augustus. 
However, Augustus was poisoned by his wife, it is believed, and that is as uh, Cracklight begins to feel bad, he, his first assumption is that his wife is trying to poison him. And it's kind of an egotistical approach to take because uh, one, he's identifying. What time are you guys him. at? I've just lost uh, my video and I had to switch things. Um, I am showing twenty minutes and fifty seconds. Okay. Yeah, I'm there too. Twenty-one. Yeah, just hit twenty-one now. And he's throwing up. Yep. And this is the first indication that something is really wrong with him. And, you know, Brian Dennehy, uh, both critics and Peter Greenaway himself, really, really tipped their hats to Brian Dennehy in this film. And Dennehy long touted it as his favorite role that he ever played. And before this, you never had such emotional connection in a Peter Greenaway film. Um, but Brian Dennehy played this part as as such a vulnerable human being, again playing against type from his previous roles. That and I love the, how when he gets sick, the camera distances itself away from him. It's like it don't want to be near him when he's weak. Right. And how you know? Okay. okay the guy go, putting on his shoes. Go ahead, and right I'm going to talk about Dennehy for a second after you're done. Okay, real quick, I just wanted to point out that the guy who put on his shoes that Caspasian just handed money to, it's showing you that that was all a publicity stunt set up by Caspasian to draw more attention to the exhibit. It's like this big, important, artistic, architectural exhibit, and here Caspasian is just using these cheap publicity tricks to get more attention for it, which on one hand kind of cheapens the exhibit, but on the other hand is kind of smart because, once again, this is not a Roman architect, so they need all the help they can get. And here we are, a tourist booth with no tourist, and Storley steals a couple postcards before he heads out. Um, Go ahead, talk about uh, Dennehy for a minute, Carl. Yeah, before we get to Dennehy, I want to say this real, real, real quick. Well, look at uh, what's-his-name who produced uh, Rosemary's Baby. He produced some great films. But because he used ballyhoo and cheap trickery, no one gave him the respect he deserved. Now go, Carl. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, as far as Dennehy is concerned, you know, we did a nice uh, uh, memorial for him. and And, you know, the one thing about Dennehy... Most people know him from, uh, you know, like uh, Ten and, and, and Seller maybe and so on and so forth. But he was quite an actor, and he was primarily, particularly later in his career, uh, a, a theatrical actor, you know, plays. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the best uh, purveyors of Eugene O'Neill and Arthur Miller on stage. And if you take a look at his action films, if you take a look at uh, at uh, the Rambo film, um, it escapes me right now. Um, but any of his films that you see, you don't realize that how really fine of an actor he was. This is one of the few films that really show what he he can do. 
and it's and it's an amazing film, and it's and look really good. Making a copy of a copy. Mm-hmm. Yes, which is kind of interesting because once again he's taking this uh, amazing piece of marble sculpture, the statue of Augustus, and first off using as its source a cheap tourist postcard. And then using a modern piece of equipment, the the copy machine, the Xerox machine, to blow it up. So it's kind of a little interesting comment on the way art is reproduced for, uh, I don't know how to say, uh, cheap or less yeah. distinguished And well, look, reason. this is how he sees himself and how he really is. We got to see how he really is first, then how he sees himself. When he put that picture on his belly. Right. And as the film and I love progresses... how small the, the Greenway made him look right there. Like he's yeah, and that's kinda in interesting. the background. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, too, because when you compare the humans in this film, Cracklight, or Brian Dennehy, he's the most formidable in stature of all of them. But Greenaway shoots the film despite the fact that the, the biggest man in the movie is is the centerpiece when compared to humans. He dwarfs him in in the shots of Rome. The real Rome. So, yes. So he, while he is a, while he is uh, imposing in, stru- in stature, he's nothing compared to these timeless pieces of architecture that have remained for thousands of years. Uh, the EUR <laughs> building notwithstanding. I'm sorry, I love that. This is the tomb of Augustus? <laughs> yes, but he's not at home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we're a little bit ahead of you, Steve. Um, at least, uh, Carl, are you at the point where they're in bed? Yes, they're the just coming to bed, yeah. I want you to eat a pig okay. for Maybe. Maybe I'm a little ahead because of the PAL conversion. Yeah. But think well, of that I got metaphor. it from you, so we're basically in the same position, yeah. you and I, Tony. Yeah. Just think of the eating the pig thing. You can go back to Spartacus for that one. What do you like? Do you like figs or do you like pears? Oh, I like figs. And there is a there's an interesting sequence, I believe is it drowning by numbers? Where the 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 proper way to eat a fig is compared with the sexual organs or the, the genitalia of a woman. Yeah. Uh I I don't think that really plays much into this, but it's kinda interesting how figs once again come up in a greenaway film. Yeah. But, you know, supposedly Augustus was poisoned with figs. So Brian Dennehy thinks, well, okay, his wife met a handsome, young, predatory Italian man, and now maybe she's trying to get rid of me by poisoning me with figs, the way Augustus died. Well, Again, he his obsession. an apple, but that would have been too on the nose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, again, though, it's a depiction of his obsession overpowering or blinding him to his own life and what's really going on around him. Because yeah. even while his... it looks like there's two beds instead of one. 
Yeah. Yeah. Kind of indicating a separation. And it's interesting because at first it's his obsession with his exhibition that puts a wedge in his own marital life. And then later, starting here with these these obsession with the stomach, that draws his his attention even away from his own exhibition. All this time he could be spending on the Boulet exhibition, he be, he becomes more and more obsessed with stomachs and 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 his own pain, and it takes him forever to go see a doctor where he could have possibly caught and dealt with this early on time because months after this he's too far gone to even deal with it by the time he goes to a doctor well look at his hair and makeup in the, from the start of this movie he's in rough shape from mean? the start oh yeah yeah as soon as as soon as uh the the formality of introducing himself to the, the roman architectural world you kind of see how disheveled he starts becoming like like the way he's feeling on the inside. And you know, hey, do you remember what break light break a light is? Bakelite? Yeah, Bakelite. Yeah. I would say that his day being crackalite and bakelite are connected because <laughs> bakelite is a cheap plastic that they used uh, in 50s American architecture. Yes, and in so many other things, making phones and and hairbrushes and things like that. It was the precursor to plastic. Yeah. Now, I believe right. these things is considered quite quite something. I mean, I my folks uh, uh um were um antique people and and go to flea markets and that and they we had a house that had bakelite in it and so on and so forth it's actually very collectible these days yes it is it has become it has become a whole category of of in the collector's market and that's because they made it so cheap and crappy that it's hard to find some that's in good condition yeah, because over the years it dried out and became brittle and yeah. and kind of crumbled apart. So finding finding Bakelite uh, items in good shape has become you know important to some people. I love what the doctor people. said to him. Do you have such an uh, heroic abdomen? Yeah, like the doctor right away recognizes the fact that Cracklight's ego is intruding. On, on himself and even right here when he's giving him a diagnosis he says you know too much coffee and lack of exercise and maybe too much egoism or egotism so everyone but Cracklight sees the fact that his own ego has overtaken him and blinded him to so many things around him and that's what allows uh, Caspasian to not only take his wife, but take his life in a way, you know, take his life's uh, goal, which is this exhibition. It's just taken away from him because Cracklight has become so imbued in his own self-obsession. 
Yeah. It's like Boulay See, Carl, was the gateway too much to. Ego and too much coffee will make you sick. Uh, no, not me. I'm, I, <laughs> I, I, I am. Uh, I am okay. I'm just letting you know now. Cheese, coffee, cigarettes, and uh, chocolate. The four C's. That's how I survive. And there you go. <laughs> well, I'm not going to argue with you there, being a fellow cheese obsessionist. <laughs> Ooh, I got to tell. Afterwards, I got to tell you what I made today. And look at this. Oh, nice. I love this. Just the pure chaos of his work and everywhere. Right. And, you know, at, at, at a cursory glance, you're seeing a, uh, uh, a view of an architect preparing for an exhibit. But as Caspasian kind of wanders around and looks at things, he notices right away these stomachs as, well, this doesn't belong in the Boulay exhibit. What's he doing here? Why has he got this stomach stuff going on? And, you know, Louisa, who is is not as interested in architecture, she doesn't even notice. She just assumes all of this mess that Cracklight creates is has to do with architecture. So she misses the fact that her husband is sick and yeah. unbeknownst to everyone who is dying, but the signs are already creeping into the scenery. And unlike Cracklight, who would just look at all of this stuff, as soon as she bent over, look where his eyes went. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's she's playing a little bit of a dangerous game here, because on one hand, she knows Caspasian has a reputation for being sexually predatory and a Lothario. And she is still in love with her husband, but at the same time, she's not receiving any love back. She's not receiving any attention. So even from a sleazebag like Caspasian here, it's not entirely unwelcome. Yeah, but he represents life and Caspian represents death. Dealing with dead, dead, a dead architect, uh, the death of Augustus, his cancer. Yes, and the contrast between youth and old age, again, which was shown on the red couch earlier. It's, See, Cracklight was never that girl. forward. He was never that yeah. talented. <laughs> you could say that. You have to have a passion for everything. To ha- yeah, he knows his work as an architect, but he doesn't have any passion for it. Right. In the Greenway film, that's one of the biggest crimes that you can have is not having passion. Yes. And even though passion and obsession lead to one's downfall, it's it's kind of hinted at that without passion and obsession, your life is not your own. There's that beautiful typewriter building. That is just gorgeous. Yeah. It's well, actually it's like called my favorite the U.R. Building. In the cook, the thief, uh, the wife and the lover, where the bookmaker describes fixing a book and stuff like a, a sexual experience. Right. I smell of the pages as I turn them and fix them. 
This is kind of a funny little subtle nod here. And there's in in this film between, you know, youth and old age, there is also a parallel um metaphor ongoing about, you know, uh ancient traditions and modernity. And you know, like like just the way that they've got all these paperwork laid out and and they're preparing for this big exhibit that is centered around the tradition of ancient long-standing architecture and and immortality in a way but then they bring in this big fancy catering thing and just set it right on top of it and to these to these uh suit-wearing romans you know almost it's almost like well yeah this exhibit's important but not nearly as important as having a nice food spread uh you know what? I I'm almost there with them. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> and that's that's kind of one of the things yeah, I like about this film that's is the that biggest difference between Crackalite and Caspian right there. Caspian is a showman. Right. Exactly. And and in a way, it's it's showing the the. Uh, justification and folly of both sides of the coin. You yeah. know, it's important to honor the tradition and the long-standing immortality of of these buildings and what has made them survive for yeah. so long. But at the same time, not changing with the times can cause you to wither and die. Yeah, a lack it's of evolution. Like, uh, podcast. Yes, it's great that we're talking seriously about this movie, but. Jokes. We need jokes and a little bit of folly in it too to keep the people entertained while we tell the more important points. Exactly. Greenaway often laments the fact that he feels restrained uh, when making films. He feels restrained or constrained by being forced to include storylines because. He wants to totally explore the possibilities of the cinematic medium, which he feels is being held in its infancy by current filmmakers for the most part. He feels that most movies made are nothing more than illustrated novels and that the medium of cinema is capable of so much more, while at the same time he acknowledges the fact that it's unfair to ask of an audience to sit for two hours and stare at the screen without some kind of plot to follow. So he kind of reluctantly adds plots to his movies in order to display his obsessions and interests. Well, Carl's going to pass out, but Malik proved with Tree of Life that you can make audiences set riveted, including the masses, with a movie without a basic plot structure. Right. Yes, Carl. Well, you know, said, yeah. you know again, again, film is not just plot. Okay. Granted, Absolutely. for most films it's important, but there's also this to me is like a dream film. Okay, there's there's it's much more about the inner workings of the character and what obsession is and what it means to him and things like that. So when you get into an art filmmaker like Greenway, uh, uh, it becomes more a visual medium, becomes more a philosophical medium. Where the where the interplay is not following the plot, but asking questions about the characters within the thing, and and you have this 
intellectual thing going on if if you're a uh, if you're into this type of cinema. Right, and it almost becomes a, a subconscious, secondary way of viewing the film itself. Exactly. Yeah. And like even right here, Compare you know, you've got the character. The How fucking egotistical is that? Compare yourself to the fucking Emperor Harridan. How fucking. <laughs> yeah, and like even this this last moment where he vomits and then the dog, the dog comes up and eats his vomit. You know, that's that's a joke right there put in by Greenaway because yeah. the place that the location that they're in is the baths of Villa Adriana and which is a place you know, which would normally be associated with clen- cleansing the body and here he is puking and a dog and a mangy dog comes along and eats his vomit here in the baths. Uh hold on. I had to cover up someone's ear so they wouldn't bite you. Problems recently with uh, my stomach, and I'm glad I'm not like Crackalite. I'm glad that I found it may be podcasting, but I'm glad that I still have my passion. Yeah, it's important to have. It seems like he's just going through the motions. Who, crack light? Yeah. 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 And this is this is kind of an interesting scene here where he's in the bath, quote unquote, attempting to drown himself. He's he's acting very childishly in in a way that he's trying to get sympathy and attention from his wife, but yet he's not willing to give any. So he's here in the bathtub splashing around like a friggin' child you know, talking about drowning himself. Well, his wife at this point has realized that he is detached from her. And as a result, or perhaps a reaction, she's detaching from him even more so. Yeah, there's always, a, you know. And plus, you could see this as a joke on the death of uh, Marat. Yeah, yeah, you could. He doesn't have the balls to end his own life. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. Yeah, he blames his body when it's his mind. Yes, exactly. Oh, yes, yes they have. He portrays himself as a victim. He sees himself as a victim when, in fact, he is both victim and 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 perpetrator of his own downfall. Yep. He's victimizing himself. And you know what? We do that as human beings. How many people do you know? You know. You know, playing the victim card. Uh, yeah, and I have a very close friend of mine that does that, and I keep trying to tell her not to, and and uh, it's it's a difficult thing, but you know that's human nature. It really is. It only is for babies who who can't stand not getting out of the house for three or weeks or more. Oh, you poor <laughs> darling little things. Yeah. 
<laughs> but it is interesting the what you were talking about, Carl, how you know ultimately when you look at life dispassionately and at the human condition, most of the bad things that happen to us are a direct result of decisions we are we ourselves made. Oh, and, absolutely. And so many people can't see that or refuse to see that, blind themselves to it out of their own ego and think that the world is against them when in fact you trace back the the stages that led to these moments where they feel like a victim. It's usually their own choices that led them there. And that that's true for yeah. all of us. Absolutely. I mean, look at him. He's like, why aren't you going? Well, they didn't ask me. Well, you can come with me. Well, they didn't ask me personally. Some people look right. for a reason to go, poe me, poe me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's easy to that. do that. Not get into that. That's real okay. easy. And this echoes the earlier scene uh, on the steps where when Cracklight stole those postcards, you know, he's going home because he doesn't feel good, but he won't admit that. So he uses the excuse of, i got to go work on the exhibit. You run off and go see the sights with uh, Caspasian and Flavia. And she's like, well, why don't you take me? She's like, she's saying, you know, I need attention from you, the person I love. And he just dismisses it and won't even admit the real reasons why he is not able to go. Yeah. And here he's turning it around and saying, you know, stay with me, stay with me. But he's given her nothing and expects her to give, give, give. And she said, right. come with me, come with me. And he's like, stay, you know. And speaking of talking about fascists, Pasolini yes. was killed by the fascists in Italy. Yes. There's so many artists who got killed in Italy <laughs> in this movie in subtle <laughs> ways. <laughs> well, Italy is a place Poisoning. of death. Drowning. <laughs> Be, you know. Here's the Piazza and Dome of St. Peter's. Mm-hmm. Where he You know, the one thing the one thing you mentioned earlier about about Dennehy is his physicality. Right? And mm-hmm. yet there where he sits out, you could feel that he's not feeling well. You could see it. You could see it within his yeah. even though he has this imposing figure, it seems like he shrinks throughout this film. Absolutely. You know, just the like only thing that uh, we really celebrate in the film is the old architecture without anyone around. Like yeah. uh, that dome scene you talked about. The music came alive when it showed the old architecture. Yeah. And it's funny, he's talking to the guy of his obsession, you know. And he, these these cards that these postcards that he writes to uh Boulet, who's, you know, been dead a couple hundred years at this point, they they become like his he's reaching out to someone unattainable for companionship and 
while the most important or what should be the most important person in his life is receiving no communication from him oh, he's gosh. writing to a dead architect talk about a line okay i'm going to take this in a different direction in. here or same direction okay so he's Sorry, writing to guys? a dead architect right but that dead architect time, is his dog Sorry, you hear me, guys? Does he there. pay that guy to put the postcard into the box? Yeah, what that is is these post boxes. They don't really do this anymore, but they actually had people stationed outside post boxes who you would pay the person directly to to post your mail. Um, it's not done so much anymore, but at the time it was still in place. So there's there's guys outside post public post boxes in Rome that you would pay the proper postage to, and they would post your mail for you. But how, but how much does that line probably resonate? That's probably how they think of us more today. And the line I was talking about is, she doesn't think she's American. Yeah. They probably see more of that more of us today after seeing uh, our leadership on both sides of the board. They probably yeah. look at well, we don't want to get into that right now as far as this is I'm concerned. not talking I'm about back this, Jim. I'm talking both sides. They probably look at us and say, they're just dancing monkeys over there in America. Okay, I need to get back to what I was going to say, Okay. Okay. which was previous, okay. the sense of, 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 of Dennehy's physicality. Now, now mm-hmm. here he's up against the wall. He's a huge man. Yeah. And yet, yet it, it seems like he shrinks from view. You can tell through, through the way that he purports himself, there, there where he's bending over and that, that uh, this all makes, you know, he's starting to really feel things. And and the thing about po- posting to Boulay, Boulay is his god, so it's it's yeah. a real cynical viewpoint on faith. I see it as, you know that that you 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 talk to God, but you won't talk to the people that love you here. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And here is uh, the scene that he's skimming money off the top and putting it back in his pocket. Right, and Cracklight overhears that, but he doesn't do anything about it. Yeah. And where he's, he's holding his more... stomach is important too, because that's where Caesar got stabbed during the first stabbing. Is, and you know, and where Jesus got stabbed with the spear. Right. Oh, yeah. Good point. But this this whole thing is indicative of of Cracklight once again portraying himself as the victim, where he could have taken assertive action to stop some of these things that are going on. This shady, this shady yeah. money skimming, and it, it's kind of an interesting parallel with the mafia as well. The way they would, yeah. you know, the mafia built a lot of great things, but they also stole in the process. And what's funny is is that he plays the victim card and he wants to be the victim, 
But when it comes to him actually being the victim, he can't handle it. No. And this whole thing where they have where uh Caspasian and Frederico, the guy here in the bow tie and the and the red jacket, color red again, um right. have have come up with this old <clears throat> drawing that they decide to distract Cracklight with by telling him it's an illustration of Boulet. And, you know, as as Cracklight says, he said, I've spent the past ten years looking for a likeness of Boulet and it doesn't exist. But he's so willing he's he's so he desires it so much to have an image of Boulet, he kind of accepts it on face value, even from these friggin' crooks who are essentially using this to distract him from their own machinations. How many times have you seen that in the record collecting community, Carl? That someone wants a copy of a vinyl so much that even though in their heart they can tell that this is a bullshit bootleg they accept it just because they want that record so bad? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. You know, a, a doubt. Another, good, another good parallel with that is uh, the, the, painter, the painter Vermeer. He uh, is known to have painted, what is it, some 27 paintings. I know that's not the right number, but right around there. And at the time when Vermeer, someone who history had written very little about. All we had were these amazing paintings, like the uh, the girl with the pearl earring and uh, these other ones, the, the, the piano lesson and things like that. He had a very distinct style, but he was one of the most, because of his popularity and his talent, he was one of the most uh, uh, counterfeited uh painters ever and some of the most prestigious galleries in the world were hanging counterfeits of Vermeer out of their pure desperation to have a Vermeer yeah what was it that movie the, that the guy we had as a guest Carl uh, Stephen Lack oh yeah all the Vermeers in New York Stephen mm-hmm. Stephen Lack, uh, you would know him from Scanners, but he's also a, a, an incredible artist. Um, yeah, he is. He's a he's a crazy good artist. He had a small part in uh, Dead Ringers too, as an artist. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But my but point he, uh, is, the full quote of that full thing is like, if I had a dollar for all the Vermeers in New York that was real, I'd only have a dollar. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And it wasn't until the 20th century that uh, it began, people began to realize, wow, a lot of these Vermeers that we've you know, spent fortunes on either seeing or displaying were counterfeit. And, well, have you, have you Tony, I know Carl has, seen an F for Fake by Orson Welles? Uh, I saw it back in college. I barely remember it. Well, well he yes, talks about it. the second half of the film where he pulls a twist. He said that if you want to believe a lie so much that you're willing to accept it for face fact without any proof of fact, without any real proof of it, that means that you have the kind of belief that 
most con man love? Natural born rube. Yep. And look at the red in this scene. Once again, red being a color of betrayal. And this is a moment where he actually witnesses his wife having sex with Caspasian. And they're they're having this youthful, sexual, playful time. And, you know, the color red is, is, is like leading you right to this act of betrayal. Yeah. And that little and that little boy is a metaphor for his son, which you'll never get to see. Right. And the immortality we find in reproduction. Yeah. Yep. And look at this. He's, he's Damn, and even a little broken. boy knows. Yeah. And here Cracklight is both broken hearted and completely fascinated by this betrayal. Again, you know, he could do something about it, built, but he doesn't. Uh, Caspian from before, this scene on is that uh, he's swallowed up by the architecture. It's eating him alive, same as the cancer. Mm-hmm. He's you know, looking at life, and that's what he's jealous of. He's not mad that the guy's diddling his wife. He wishes he had that life back. Right, look, that virility and that youth. That's what he wants. He wants life. He wants passion. And he doesn't have and that youth. anymore. Right. Well, not just and, passion. You know, youth, just passion, period. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. He chooses to be a voyeur here rather than and rather than someone who acts on something, he could have. Yeah, he could have even at this point stopped this affair, but instead he sits and watches it from afar and allows it to consume him. Well, doesn't that just basically take you by the knees when you see what you're missing and lost in life, and that there's no chance of getting it back? You kind of just become an observer to, yeah, an observer to his own downfall. Well, not his downfall, his self-destruction. Well, yeah, well, that's the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it downfall, self-destruction? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, the manner of his downfall is through self-destruction hey, for sure. That reminds me of that new picture of you. Carl is that well hung. That's why they wanted him in adult films in the 80s, Tony. <laughs> oh. no. That's why he doesn't wear shorts. Because if he wore shorts, <laughs> well, they'd be like a 99% chance of an accident happening and just... Mm, uh. <laughs> okay. No, it's, it's, to paraphrase a good guest of ours that was on, I'm sorry, Stephen, but uh, uh, the... the uh, my dick took the car keys and went home, okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can say that about him right there after this scene. His dick took the car keys and went home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, now, if anyone hasn't noticed here, I'm, I'm, I'm like the comic the relief of this particular commentary, so I'm just yeah. going with it. <laughs> hey, that's all right. Even even Greenaway uses co- comic relief, so. Yeah. <laughs> this it's it's implied or it's it's kind of like subtly implied in the film, but uh, more explicitly uh, depicted in the in the screenplay, which is pretty close to the film, but. As we all know, screenplays evolve in the actual shooting. That the address, Boulet's last known address, the place he's sending all these postcards to, is the home of uh, Eos, uh, which is Caspasian and Flavia's father, the older man. Uh, that's the home of his ex-wife. And... It's it's an interesting coincidence that is played up a little more in the original script. Uh, at one point, all of these postcards are sent back to Eo with a note from his ex-wife saying, "These these postcards have brought me endless fascination and entertainment, and I'd really like to meet this cracklight. He sounds like a fascinating man." Uh, that was cut out of the film, but I thought it was kind of interesting the coincidence that uh, Eo's ex-wife is currently living at Boulet's last known address in Paris. I love an architect looking at a real artist. Yeah. This guy walking around cracking the noses off of statues and then blowing his own nose. It's to funny be a real in a film. You have to be great at that, taking the tiny little details and perfecting them. Yeah. When you guys say, it, "Well, it's yeah, it's all about, it's all about making the details clear again," and even mm-hmm. later, this the, the guy with the noses that, noses that walks around Rome. What's that? Yeah, it was a joke about picking your nose. I don't know if you want to go there or not. I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, yeah, let's let's skip that. But it, it, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny because the next time you see the nose, the nose cracking guy, is at a scene where they are restoring statues later in the film. And here's this guy who's walking around cracking the noses off of all these old statues in the foreground while they're in the background trying to restore these statues. It's kind of a funny visual gag. <coughs> I like I like this scene at these uh at the spa, at these baths outside yeah. Rome. Because it's it's the one scene in the film where there's absolutely no indication of modernity. So you know, this this could easily take place in the 20th century or, or you know, at 50, 50 years B.C. You do, there's, no, there's no indication of anything modern in the film. And it's the one scene in the movie that's absolutely timeless. Yeah, very much so. Always climbing the stairs, hit. falling downstairs. What's that? 
What you just said, I'm almost, I'm always climbing stairs and falling downstairs. Yeah. And it's interesting how the way the Romans kind of toy with Cracklight because throughout the film, as Cracklight becomes more and more uh, obsessed with his own decay and his own health, starts to try and draw parallels between his own life and Boulay's to the point of making things up and saying things like Boulay hated this color or Boulay did that, and things that we couldn't possibly know about Boulay. And the Romans take that as as a cue and uh, and use that same method to almost mock Cracklight and manipulate him. First with, you know, the image that they claim is of Boulay, and later on they start talking about Boulay did this, Boulay did that, things we couldn't possibly know, but Cracklight is already so deeply entrenched in his obsession that he just buys into it like it's fact. And I love right. the double meaning of that, what they say. Boulay was lame. Are you a little lame? <laughs> right. You can read that into both me. Another dual meaning, which is lame as in he's got a limp, or lame as in sucked. Right. Right. I love this triptych shot, this voyeuristic shot oh, of the gorgeous. lovers in bed. And... You know, they're the centerpiece, but it, it looks like a triptych painting at the same time. With the busts on either side and the and the lovers in the center. Is that what you say when you take a poop, Carl? The Lord moves in mysterious ways? Uh, well, actually, mine doesn't move mysteriously at all. It's usually timed around a second cup of coffee. I'm just saying. Okay, that's enough of that. I'm sorry. It's you know that's more common for the wife to cook the thief and her lover. But no, sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry about that. But I, I love how distant this is from any kind that we're dealing with life in this movie. The camera is distancing itself. Mm-hmm. It's like it doesn't want to deal with life. And him talking now about, he's, well, basically having relations with his sister. Where are where are you guys at time count wise? I'm right I am too because I've pu- accidentally pushed a couple buttons on my phone that stopped it. So don't worry. About I'm at one oh seven. I'm at one oh seven sixteen. I'm okay. at one so I'm, thirteen. Sorry. Yeah, I'm at one oh seven ten right now, so we're, we're pretty close. I'm right where he's fucking with the tubes. I got that in my future, oh God. <laughs> oh God, we all do though. No, uh, I'm serious. I'm gonna get back to the doctor. I'm going to stick a big tube down my throat to check out my uh, liver. Oof. Have you? Have you had that done yet, or is that something that's in the near future? It's in the near future because of the coronavirus. Oh, yeah. It's interesting how, you know, this is played out. It looks like 
you know, despite the fact that he's in a doctor's office about to have a colonoscopy, it looks like an Odalesque. And then the camera cuts to another image like an Odalesque, his wife laying down in the opposite direction, the parallels. But in one, it's death. In the other, it's the celebration of life, which it could be argued that that's exactly what his wife is doing, is experiencing life uh, while he is shutting out his own experiences through his obsession with death. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at that. That's so beautiful. Now you yeah, can actually kind of see some tourists in the background. Yeah. There's two ways to deal with this. Uh, you can be obsessed with, oh, God, I'm dying soon. Oh, God, not this. What am I going to do? Or you can be like, oh, God, I'm dying soon. I better get a lot of crap done on this list. Exactly. And it's it's really easy to get caught up in self-pity and, and, and drowning in your own downward spiral that you yourself have created. Yeah. Oh, and Carl, next week on this show, we're going to be doing a double feature live watch of Showa and Berlin Alexander Plants back-to-back live. No, we're not. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> you can. I'm, I'm taking that week off. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be probably true. <laughs> and look at him right after he found out about his cancer. He's uh, in a place that's alive. The birds, the pool. The sunlight. The Yeah, it's it's a place that is alive with human activity and beauty while he just crumples in the in the foreground. And it's interesting because this woman, is where... She's a, well, she's a cock freak. She's like, aren't you interested in the cocks? And he's just interested in the belly. He doesn't give a shit about <laughs> sex anymore, does he, guys? Not so much, but as you'll soon see, he can be persuaded by it. And I think some of it is, well, a lot of it is due to his own self-pity and the fact that he feels so lonely and allows himself to be seduced by Caspasian's sister. And he can justify it through an act of revenge or the fact that someone is reaching out to him with compassion. But... Ultimately, Flavia is more interested in observing and recording. She's the voyeur. And all along, she is, you'll learn later, she's been documenting him since the moment he stepped off the train at the beginning and is creating this collage or montage of the the dissolution of his marriage. And once again, Red Couch, which is where he's going to have sex with Flavia and betray his own wife. And on one hand, you could say it's justified. On on the other hand, you could say it's him giving in to his own downward spiral. Yeah. Look at that. That, that. 
that shot of these these shots of the building are amazing when you see them completely cleared of tourists. You never see this anymore. You know, usually you see these shots of these famous Roman uh, Roman landmarks, and they're just swarming with tourists and people who prey on tourists. And here in Cracklight's idealized vision of Rome, these are solitary, standing, immortal edifices that that are untouched in a, in a certain way by the the activities of of humans but in right. reality these places are overrun by humans hello oh here he is hello yeah yeah we're here. going in and out uh okay here's where he discovers that flavia has been basically documenting his, his the destruction of his marriage and by extension his life and it's it's he he's finally starting to see a big picture but it's it's too late now now he's almost a a, a helpless witness to his own demise but this is where it first hits him that all of this has been a very very uh, apparent progression to the to the point of view of other people, Flavia in particular, because she's the voyeur and the documenter. But here he's seeing that other people are seeing what he doesn't, which mm-hmm. is the fact that yeah, he's, he's drifting away. Yeah, a on the wall. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, that's something that's been, been uh, dealt with in cinema a lot. I mean... You know that you know there are different ways of seeing. Of course, the most normal example of that, the best known one, would be Roshoma, where right there's yes, this, absolutely. Okay, guys, we're going to have to cancel you know, my audio's gone out. Form. My audio's okay. going out. Sorry, we'll finish this uh, uh, another time because my audio's just blah, 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 blah. I can't even hear you guys. Kid, is there it's any the way phone. you can hang up and call back in? I've already done that, and it's doing the same. Dang it. You may have to send this to me again then, then Tony, because this will go off by the 4th, right? Yeah. This will what? See? Now, Steve, is it, your, is it your phone audio that's screwing up? Yeah, my phone phone. Well, I tell you what, I hear you just fine. Yeah, you sound really clear on my side. Is it still happening? Yeah, I can hear you great. Well, y'all are going out with me, but still, we'll continue then. Sorry, people. Yeah, let's 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 try and power through. There's only forty minutes left. I love the fact that uh, this is the first time he's. They've shown any pictures of life in this movie on his wall. Right. And there's and a, it's I love the silhouette of her, too. Yeah. love how this is all set up and photographed, and, and, and it's just wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's and so beautifully I, framed I heard, and composed. And I want to say fuck you to every director. Who has a scene of someone taking what's pretty much unprocessed film 
and they're just fucking showing them in the light, ruining the fucking film. (laughs) 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 Yep. Doesn't that drive you crazy, Carl, just like when you hear someone stop a record by dragging the needle back and forth on it? Uh, well, you know, if someone does that and, and, and where I am, uh, basically, they are banned from my, my my view for eternity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I can't even handle that noise. <laughs> and now here... Caspasian intrudes upon the the red couch betrayal of of Cracklight having what could be referred to as either self pity sex or revenge sex with Caspasian's sister, and Caspasian thinks, okay, this is this is the final nail in Cracklight's coffin. I can use this photograph I just took to blackmail him and take over his project. But the ever predatory sister of his has already taken steps to prevent that, and she later reveals there's actually no film in the camera. And pop! Once again. Well, what's funny is that this scene shows the impatience. Because what he doesn't know is that if he pictures like Krakow, I've got a picture of you fucking my sister, I'll blackmail you with it. All he is like, fuck you, I'm dead in four months. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he, Cracklight's got to realize at this point it's too far gone to go back. It doesn't matter whether or not his wife finds out because, for one thing, she cheated first, and for another thing, now look at him. I mean, Brian Dennehy's character doesn't give a shit. Yeah. And once again, we have youth and old age together on the couch. By the way, do you know that is a great, a, a, a wonderful? A, I love it. The first time he ever reacts to anything, in just by punching. Movie. And he hurts his okay. ego. Okay, I was about to say something, guys. You were talking Go about this in old age. You said that three or four times. Do you realize yeah. that it is a very famous title of a famous musical composition by Raspigi? an Italian composer and yes, if you familiar. listen I'm almost positive they were playing that theme I have to check or maybe a variation on it yeah yeah uh, you know one of the one of the reasons uh, a lot of Greenaway fans don't connect with this film as much as they do with uh, other Greenaway films of the same era, not only because this film is a little more austere and not as sumptuous and rich visually as a lot of Greenaway films, although it could be argued that that's just not true, but this is one of the few films from this period in Greenaway's career where he did not work with the composer Michael Nyman. Um, Nyman is pretty much firmly associated with the first part of Greenaway's career up through uh, Prospero's books, uh, which is where they kind of parted ways. But Vim Mertens is the composer for this film with additional music by the composer Glenn Branca, 
Um, and, you know, a lot of people are put off by the fact that it's not Michael Nyman music. And, you know, in a way that's understandable because Michael Nyman and Peter Greenaway for, were for so long considered an inseparable pair as far as if you think Greenaway, you think Nyman, and you think Sasha Vierney doing the photography. But in this right. one, Nyman was, was not available, and he went with a different composer. And I think the music fits this film very well. What was that? Agreed. And, uh, but, but this, this film kind of stands apart among Greenaway fans as, as the one from this era that is less entertaining, less accomplished, less desirable. And I think part of it is because it's, it doesn't wear as, as heavy metaphors. It doesn't wear them on its sleeve as much. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact of where Greenaway was in his personal life when he made this film. And, like, uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys know about Cronenberg and The Brood, uh, the way that uh-huh. Cronenberg kind of refuses to talk about The Brood because it's a far too personal film for him. And it was, it was his own therapy for the dissolution and brutal custody battle that he went through at that time in his life. So this is kind of like that film for Greenaway because uh, he suffered a bit of a nervous breakdown in 1985 and kind of wrote this film in the aftermath of his life falling apart, his own personal life falling apart. And as a result, he, as far as I know, he's only done one solid interview about this film, which is right when it came out. But for the most part, Greenaway, outside of surface symbolism, doesn't really like to talk about this film because I think it dredges up too much pain from his from his own life. Mm-hmm. And, and when he does talk about it, uh, Cronenberg's it's story, enough. which was uh, on the first day of uh, rehearsal for a Dead Ringers, Cronenberg took yes. the entire cast and set them in a theater and showed them a Z and two knots. Yes, he did. And the, the, the final scene of Dead Ringers strongly echoes the final scene of a Z and two knots with the, with the two central characters. Both twins um, lay themselves out on a platform where they are photographed and where they die. They, they die from murder-suicide. And while Cronenberg was prepping for uh, making the movie Dead Ringers, which, as we know, was actually based on a weird true-life event of the Marcus twins, two gynecologists, it was highly fictionalized, but it was inspired by this this weird, tragic death of the Marcus twins. But uh, Cronenberg met with Greenaway to discuss specifically a Zed and Two Nights and his feelings about duality and twins and symmetry. And, you know, it's, it's, it's rarely acknowledged by, by a lot of people how, how closely the two are related, uh, Dead Ringers and a Zed and Two Knots. But, yes, you're, you're absolutely right, Steve. It was a huge inspiration for Cronenberg. Being recorded in the newspapers, don't we, Carl? Yep. Yeah, that that was uh, in the newspaper when I was in New York City in the eighties. Oh, the when their bodies were discovered in their in their apartment. Yep. 
yeah, that was a crazy article. I, 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 uh, when, when dead ringers came out when I was in college or shortly before, um, the, the, I, I went and hunted down that original Harper's article that, that talked about the strange life and death of the Marcus twins. And it, it could be argued, I know we're really sidetracking here, but it could be argued that this film, Dead Ringers, wasn't nearly as weird as the life and death of the Marcus twins. It, 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 their, their life was so strange, and their death even stranger. Yeah. Oh, yeah, agreed. Agreed. And, uh, and here we are, days days before the Boulay exhibit. Yeah. What is Storley Cracklight doing? Obsessing with Boulay. issues and all that, but this is one of Greenway's best, in my opinion. Anyone who says this yeah. isn't entertaining doesn't like real acting. I agree. I totally agree. This This movie is really, really... It's so very human and so brutally honest about conditions that exist in all of us. Mm-hmm. And it, it probably contains some of the, the least amount of artifice for any Greenaway film from the period. It's, it's, it's so grounded in reality, even though, you know, it is still a work of an artifice, of artifice, as and, Greenaway and is, is, is prone to reminding us. And uh, Greenway is the most pretentious artist of all of the directors that come out of the indie scene of this time. And we mean that in a good way. And this is his least pretentious film. Right. But as Greenway is is very quick to point out, the very act of making art is an act of pretension. And what is art if not artifice? So right. he wears Absolutely. it on its his sleeve, you know, like like very pr- strongly with the baby of Macan, where yeah. you are watching a film within a play within a play within a play, and at the end of the film you pull back so far that the the final the final shot of the movie is meant to be you yourself as the final audience turns around and looks at you. And, you know, to call Greenaway pretentious is, in Greenaway's opinion, to notice the fact that he is making pretensions in order to get ideas across. He doesn't take it as a as an insult at all. No, and, and, and I'll tell you someone else that reminds me of is Haneke. Yes. Uh, the sense of of that the audience themselves is in the action that they are watching it to get a reaction from the art or from the horror movie as in funny games or whatever the case would be. Um, Right. Someone else like that. And and actually this movie reminds me a bit of him is uh, Marco Ferrari. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the, the sense of, of, uh, in in, in that sense, it's like a, the main character going down the tubes, and he has no he has no uh, uh, compass or anything to get himself out of the the, the fate that he has. You now that's very true here. Yeah, you know another filmmaker that I I've always 
felt was heavily influenced by Greenaway, but he never mentions Greenaway as one of his influences, is Wes Anderson. The way he composes shots and moves the camera and structures everything very much like a, a, an artifice and a, and a constructed image and the way the camera moves in parallel with the action. Yeah. But if Wes Anderson would have made this movie, he would have made all the Italians like he does in the movie where he puts... Yeah, you are starting to cut out Under now, Stephen. But, mm-hmm. but with Wes Anderson, with, with Wes Anderson, it's all about whimsy. <laughs> Peter Greenway is not whimsical at all. No, not who, very. If it wasn't for the guy who did the last days of disco, Wes Anderson would be the whitest, waspy, most racist <laughs> director there is. Out of the nineties brood. How so? He and I always have this argument. So you know, you just stepped into shit when you mentioned Wes Anderson, Tony. <laughs> oh, I, I I am so sorry for opening those those floodgates. <laughs> <laughs> I just always found it interesting the way Wes Anderson's visual style frequently mirrors that of Greenaway. Oh, but yeah. when Wes Anderson talked. He talks about his influences. He never mentions Greenaway, and I have always wondered why that was. Because I mean, you can't you can't convince me that Wes Anderson never watched Greenaway. Uh, full circle, which is coming in the next couple of years. You're going to see people coming out of the woodwork going, "Oh, Greenaway inspired me. I love Greenaway." Yeah, and for so long he had the reputation of being this enfant terrible of cinema. And, you know, a lot of that was self, self-constructed. self I mean, Greenaway has, has in through the progression of his life and his career, he started out as this angry young man who was using cinema to, to basically show that the human movie or the, 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 the movie-going audiences of the world don't know shit and could be, could be, having so much more and it's it's kind of interesting the way in his youth like during the time he made this movie greenaway was constantly embittered and cranky about the state of cinema and how every director that was popular was making shit and all they were doing was illustrating stories when they could be bringing beauty and innovation into the world and now that he's approaching his i think he's almost 80 now um, now that yeah. he's approaching the end of his life, he's become so much more peaceful and relaxed and even jolly. So you, when when you look at new Greenaway interviews, he's actually praising people like Ridley Scott and Steven Spielberg, the very same directors in his youth that he used to say were ruining cinema. He can now actually give them compliments. Um, in an interview well, that he did uh, a few years back when Goldsius and the Pelican Company came out, a uh, movie everybody should see. I can't stress that enough. But anyway, he he talked about, yeah, sure, even if uh, Ridley Scott picks a shitty script, um, which I think he, which Greenaway thinks he normally does, um, he turns it into art. You know, he, he said he paid this compliment to Ridley Scott saying that even if a car is turning a corner in a Ridley Scott film, it it is filmed like a beautiful piece of art. 
And that's the polar opposite of the way he used to talk when he was younger. Okay. And in all serious, you could see this film as Greenway basically killing the just already new side of himself. As in, he realized that it's all bullshit, life, and passion, which more after this when you got to uh, the Cook to Feet the Wife of His Leather, Prospero's books, Nine and a Half Women, The Pillow Book. Yeah. <coughs> That's Eight and a Half Women, by the way, not Nine and a Half, but yeah. Eight and a Half. Um, this is kind of an interesting scene where the doctor is basically breaking the news to Cracklight by using these ancient figures of history and yeah, Rome to... Uh, a scene when we did our tribute that Carl wanted to uh, uh, use. So, Carl, tell us, why did you want to use this scene in there? Why did you love it so much? Well, I, I love, in terms of this, I love the sense that, you know, the the historical figures and also the juxtaposition of of the doctor and the faces and just I, I, I love this this sense. And he, and also what the doctor is saying to him and how he says it. It's not it's not straightforward, but it's there and he understands. Right. And then in a in a scenario where Cracklight is kind of surrounded by people who are not very sympathetic toward his condition or his interests. This doctor is taking a moment of human compassion and at the same time while while presenting things in a very cynical viewpoint of saying, okay, this guy died screaming, this guy died screaming, this guy didn't die screaming, he died peacefully in his sleep, but it doesn't matter, he's still dead. And he takes him down this progression of of important figures as, as almost like an act of com- a compassion toward Cracklight, saying, you know, you look, I'm telling you right now that you're dying, but it's a little easier to swallow when you think about other people possibly greater than you who have died in worse ways. Yeah. So while being yeah. simultaneously cynical, it's almost it, it's, it's also very compassionate. And Suave um, said that... Uh, the fact that they only refer to El Morte de El Morte by his job in uh, Cemetery Man is sort of a tribute to this because he refers his importance in life as being an architect. Right. And that is an and important thing in Italy. They would call you back then by your job title. Yeah. Like that—that's what—that's what, that's what uh, is a weight or a measure of your worth, and therefore, by extension, your own identity. Right. Your name isn't as important. And Cracklight kind of acknowledges that in his letters to Boulay. You know, he signs them sincerely yours, Storley Cracklight, but always puts in parentheses afterwards, architect. You and have you guys noticed that throughout the film, as skinnier as he gets. Then he doesn't lose weight. He wears bigger clothes. Oh, yeah. 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 It's a way of 
visually diminishing him. Like, and he becomes sweatier and sweatier. Right here. Mm-hmm. Look how sweaty and sunken and defeated he is here. I mean, look at the eyes. Cracklight's life yeah. is is just it's leaving him. And this is once again a a, a testament to how brilliant Brian Dennehy is in this film. You know, it's a film full of metaphor, symbolism, and historical context, but at the very center, and at visually the center of almost every image, is Storley Cracklight. But at the center of it all is this very human, vulnerable character. And I don't think that this film would be nearly as powerful if a different actor had been cast in the role. Greenaway and, kind and of I got... Think... What's that, yeah, Carl? Go ahead. Well, I was oh, just going Greenaway to say I got totally it. agree. Yeah, and, and Greenaway didn't realize what he had until the filming was underway. Uh, Greenaway was used to kind of just moving his actors around like chess pieces in order to convey what he wanted. And here comes Brian Dennehy, who just pours his own pathos into the into the role and by extension makes this such a strong, strong film that it wouldn't have been with another actor that Greenaway could just move around like a chess piece. Yeah. And this scene right here is really Crackleite's only really sympathetic monologue in the whole movie. Yeah, it really is. This, this is, is where you can tell then he's a stage actor because he can't project that. Right, right. And here he is basically accepting his own fate, something that he kind of has either ignored or fought against through the entire progression of the nine months that he's been in Rome. And now days before the, the the exhibit is to open, he's finally come to realize not only what he's done to himself, but where he's at in his life, and that is completely alone in an empty world. Really emphasized here by this shot. Stop to look at. What's that, Steve? The one where he said he was an architect, but he died. He died. Still. Yeah, but he he's dead nonetheless. And now we're back in the, uh, back in the, the uh, sorry, the uh, Pantheon restaurant, like we were at the beginning of the film. But now, instead of a confident, hopeful, ambitious crack light, we are seeing a completely fallen crack light. He's drunk. He looks like shit. His clothes don't fit him anymore. And at the opening, it was his birthday, and. Now it's almost his death day. And like I said before, I hope you've got it, that I loved how Denny and Greenway chose to not make him get skinnier, per se, but to make him wear giant clothes, baggier clothes. Mm-hmm.
And Carl, couldn't you put that scene where he poured just the water on himself as sort of a self-baptism or last rite? Perhaps, perhaps. I hadn't thought about that, but that's not a bad. Uh, uh, that's that's pretty good, Steve. Yeah, and that's there's, there's an interesting. That's how Greenway is the fe- how feathery a lot of his uh, nods are. Like there's a lot of directors that would just beat you over the head with a club with their metaphors. Right, and Greenaway kind of assumes that you're intelligent enough to get them at least on a subconscious level. And like yeah. your 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 observation there, Steve, was was a very astute one about the last rites because uh, another characteristic of Rome is the fact that it was built by what is today considered pagans. It was built by pagans and heavily uh, Christianized throughout the century. <laughs> you know, throughout the centuries. And. And there is a lot of inherent Christianity that has been over the years uh, uh, overlaid, if you will, onto Rome and its history. But in fact, it, all of these edifices that are were originally <laughs> created by what is now considered pagan. That's a beautiful you line. Have fun with the belly here. No, <laughs> my life likes to eat company. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gotta agree that's a great pun, don't you think, Carl? Yep. You know, a lot of uh, one thing that a lot of people don't realize in connection with this film is that Greenaway's parents, both of them, his mother and his father, they both died of stomach cancer. Uh, several years apart, but um, that had to be, you know, the main reason why it was stomach cancer that was the demise of this character is, once again, Greenaway working out some personal demons, and again, probably why he doesn't like to really discuss this film on any deeper level than its architecture and its historical context. Yeah. And I've seen too many people look at music, look at film like that, is that they look at it in purely clinical views without any love for the subject. Right. Another thing that is kind of significant to Greenaway's body of work is and something that this film also plays into. Now, okay, after after Greenaway's father died, um, shortly thereafter, Greenaway made a, a short film called A Walk Through H. And on one level, it's, it's, it's mostly just narration, Michael Nyman music, and photographs of paintings that Greenaway made. And it's presented as it can be interpreted by the viewer as either a walk through heaven or a walk through hell, and it's almost structured like a roadmap. But one of the things that uh, is, is kind of implied by the film is the fact that how much is lost, how much knowledge and awareness and history is lost when a person dies. If they don't leave something behind to represent the path that they have 
walked and left on Earth that so much of their knowledge and experience that they could have brought to the table for the benefit of human knowledge is is lost like that. And and that that this is definitely a film that plays into that. Hemingway wrote, guys. What? Ask not for whom the bell tolls, for it may be tolling for you. Yes, for it tolls for thee. And he was clapping his hands like Charles Lawton in the Hunchback of Notre Dame there. Yeah. And once again, you know, that plays back to what I was saying earlier about uh, how this is a, a very symmetrical film. At the beginning... The applause is out of true appreciation for the monuments left behind by those greater than us and those that came before us and those whose shoulders we stand on. And here he's applauding he's applauding an almost an irony of the futility of it all. Right. Nose behind toes. I love I love the sense of all that architecture behind him and how it dwarfs everything. Right. It's just it's amazing. The you're right about about uh, uh, Anderson. I mean, I can see connections at the very least. Yeah, at least visual connections, if not somatic connections. Yeah, um, I would say it's more, more visual. Yeah, definitely. And the way the way that Greenaway. At the, his end of his times, what does Dennehy do with this beautiful architecture? Hmm. He scratches his back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that shows how much it really means to him in the end. Yeah. And this is like the final roll call. Oh, he's been arrested for public drunkenness, etc., and he's being processed by the police in front of a giant stomach. And this is almost like the moment where where his life is being tallied up. Uh, you could, you know, the, the Carl, as yeah, I'm sure parts, you would attest, that that, that is. Yeah, the the tallying up of one's life and accomplishments is, is prevalent throughout so many different cultures and their religions. Right, Carl? Oh, absolutely. And here, uh, what have we got? We've got Dennehy's life being tallied up by the police, and it's basically what's your name, what's your occupation, where were you born, where you currently live, and that's it. And he even asks, is that it? And the, the, the police officer says, well, what else would there be? It's kind of sure. a tragic okay. little summing of his life. I another birthday. Yeah. He knows it. He knows he's about to end, and he's kind of decided to choose the manner of his own death at a time where he should be celebrating his life's accomplishment. His life is gone. It's been summed up and found not only wanting but empty. It's like me. I'm like, uh, what's your next birthday? I don't know if I'm going to make it. Shut up. We don't want to hear that shit. Okay. Right. You know? <laughs> you know, even here he's like he's, he's cleaned himself up, he's shaved, but he still looks like oh, hell. He's rotting away from the inside. 
he doesn't even have the courage to attend his own his own exhibition. Instead of celebrating the opening of something he's worked so hard to accomplish, he begins to decide the manner of ending his own life. Well, it don't mean it don't mean shit to him anymore, and that's sort of a no. good thing. He's free of his obsessions. But what is he left with? Almost a big basket full of futility. And I don't know. Maybe there's something freeing in that for him or for anyone, for that matter. It doesn't matter how you free yourself as long as you are. Right. And his wife found her own way to become free, which, you know, is is ironically... She went from one pretentious prick to another. And it's kind of ironic to think that as as Cracklight realizes the futility of his own life and the wasting of his own efforts through obsession and self-consumption, that in the end, when he dies, he is made immortal by the birth of his son. Yeah. And you know they won't be talking that nice to him unless he wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As everyone kind of accepts the fact that Storyly Cracklight is no more. They, and look, even they're less cruel. Posed as a loser in the last moments, and crack, and crack out one. Yeah, from one perspective. Yeah, from one perspective, that's absolutely true. You know, Caspasian wants it's desperately to step do, forward. It's how you're remembered. Yep. And Caspasian wants to step forward and fully take hold of the control and the praise of this exhibition. But even his father, Eo, knows better. He says, no, this is not for you. Now, earlier on in the film, when uh, when when they had first arrived in Rome at the apartment and things were still going pretty good between him and his wife, there's a scene as they're getting ready for bed before, before he first experiences his first real pain that he meticulously lays out his wallet, his keys, his change, and things out on the nightstand. And that's echoed here in this final scene before he kills himself. He does the same thing up on this balcony before he throws himself out the window. He lays out his wallet, his keys, his change. Yeah. Have you guys ever seen the video for uh, that one song, you know, You're Beautiful by uh, that British artist who had basically one big hit? I don't think so. No, I can well, he uh, he did that because it always creeped him out that whenever he was a medic in the Gulf War, he said he noticed whenever uh, any of the soldiers went out to die, they would go there and they would find their watch, their wallet. Really? Laid out, you know, their watch laid and their personal goods laid out in a perfect symmetrical line. Hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. No, I didn't either. 
did not know that. And I don't know whether it's it's uh, it's meant to be a nod to the uh, the items in your pocket. The items that you have in your pockets are kind of an example of who you are, or the fact and that you know what this thing is, uh, ultimately these material possessions mean nothing. Yeah, great wishes of people to get to hear your own memorial before you die. Right. And that comes up a lot in storytelling, whether it be from from someone faking their death and attending their own funeral, so to speak, or uh, people believed to be dead and had funerals held for them. But yeah, attending your own funeral is is a big motif that you encounter a lot in storytelling. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites of of that is Get Low. If you've never seen that, Tony, you need to. No, I've never seen that. And in somatic uh, dial, in somatic uh, view, well, visual theory of movies, when you fade to black, you're still alive. But if a movie fades to white at the end of it, you're dead. Yes. A.K.A. him dressed in the white suit. And see, he's putting everything in a perfect, symmetrical line. Right. These these material trappings that he carries with him, yeah. leaving them behind. Is it is it as a signpost or a fact that you know, you can't take it with you, uh, so to speak? Everything that's holding you to this world. The quote right. Dora Lansdale. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, the one thing he decides to keep when he jumps is the uh is the, the the one pound note. But even that in the end blows out of his hands. Right. Leaving him with nothing well, material. Well don't you remember they used to put the pennies on, on your eyes to pay Charon on the gate as your way to a ferry to the other side? <laughs> right. So of course he's got to have the, the pound note in his hand. You got to pay off the guy, to, <coughs> the ferryman. <laughs> the ferry you on the river, river sticks. Yeah. A little religious symbolism of the Christ pose here, as he ends his his own life. And I, I still appreciate. Okay, you know, we're once going again, to go into overtime here just as we're going to the end of this movie. You'll have to wait. Yeah. By 30 minutes after there, 6.30, the whole show should be up for you to listen to the last of it. Thank you for listening. And I love he waits for everyone to go before he does it. And no one notices yeah. him. Yeah, and and now look at look at Rome. Now we're seeing the tourists. Now we're seeing the traffic. Now that Cracklight is dead, his idealized vision of Rome is re- revealed to be fake. Oh. It was, you know, yeah. it was never never real. And the final image of the gyroscope, something that can at least temporarily uh, defy gravity and hence the natural order of the world is shown to finally topple. 
Right. And once again, like the gyroscope, you can't you can't fight the balance of nature forever. You know what I mean by his real way, I can see his son. And the quote that I saw by, uh, I forget it, you know, when I'm dead. He said, and when I'm dead and when I'm gone, there'll be one child born to carry on. (laughs) Carry on by uh, (laughs) Crosby Stills Nash Young. Yeah. yeah, and this is what it shows that life carries on like a gyroscope. It just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning. And the world and nothing stops because. Right. But even without something else to power it, a gyroscope even eventually falls. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Well, I, I have a—I must say that this is actually the first time I've ever seen this film all the way through. So your wow. insights, Tony, are, are just, were just tremendous, and, and we want to thank oh, you for thanks. that, particularly me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, anyone who knows me oh, knows that man. I'm that I'm almost a psychotic <laughs> fan. Hey, of I got Greenway. it right. No, they no, you have that wrong, Tony. They just know that you're psychotic. Oh, okay. Yeah, just in general. Yeah, well, like Greenway you know, films are psychotic because he likes the, the Greenway film that most of them don't like. Which is? Which one is that? Steven? Which one, Steve? Did we lose Steve? I think we lost Steve. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, really, really. He sets up this thing and then he disappears. We'll never know what the hell he meant. Why? <laughs> he bailed on us to go get all the fir- all the biggest cookies. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, okay, what movie? What do you mean? You said the movie that you most said... people don't like. Yeah, this one, The Bellevue Architect, most uh, Greenway fans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean this is this is uh, in my opinion a movie that that deserves greater attention, especially from Greenaway fans who frequently dismiss it. I think there's there's a lot to be mined out of the experience of watching this movie. And Carl, yeah, I would urge want you to, no watch, human, to watch to watch this again by yourself. Him, we want weird shit. Oh, I will, I will. No, there's no question about it. No question. Well, look at David Lynch and the shit he caught from the straight forward from his fans that like his weird stuff. Right. And then, you know, over a decade later, the straight story has shown itself to be, wow, this is a David Lynch film. Just because it was released by Disney and was rated G, this is still a freaking David Lynch film. Yeah. And I think the belly belly of an architect has has kind of had that same effect. It's, people have have oh, come to reappraise it much later in Greenaway's career and realize its validity and the fact that it does belong among his filmography with a very strong prominence. Well, you know, that happens with, with almost every artist that has longevity. You know, you, you get to a point where their later stuff, you know, you know, they start looking at their early stuff and, and, Oh, that really was a good movie. You know, we were right. wrong. Yeah. It's like the Van you know, I mean, it's like the Van Gogh effect, you know. It's it's 
it's you know artists can struggle through so much and then later be reappraised as genius i mean shit the same thing happened to john carpenter look at how many of his brilliant films bombed when they came out and things like the thing which he was ridiculed for and and chastised for is now considered a masterpiece of modern cinema yeah very frustrating very frustrating uh, for the artist here's a big question why is it that when a director gets a rabid cold, and I call this the Kevin Smith syndrome because it's the most outwardly obvious of it, that uh-huh. whenever the director tries to change and do something different, their fans get very pissed off and just basically outrage and rebel against it. Yeah. That's, I think do? that's another aspect of the your, human condition. Uh, fans that are guaranteed money, or do you go do your own thing and really don't give a crap if you make money. Yeah, and that's that's balancing art and and success, isn't it? It's, yeah, that, that's very, and there's very few people that have been able to, to, to do that on a real successful level. But getting back to reassessing films, my favorite film of all time will always be The Long Goodbye um, by Robert right. Altman. And that film, when it was first released, was a complete bomb. Wasn't until yeah, Pauline didn't know what Kale the fuck to make of it. it up. Yeah, Pauline Kale and Jack and yet, Davis. And, and yet Ugh. now it's considered one of his top two or three films of all time that he ever directed. Right. Yeah, it's interesting the way that, especially when you're when you're talking a true auteur, the way their their body of work becomes constantly des- demanding of reassessment. And and you with the with the benefit of hindsight, you begin to see the importance of some of what some people consider their mistakes later become some visionary accomplishments, like with the long right. body. Well, well, it's, it's the fluidity of the journey. If you have a true auteur, they're using art as a journey for themselves and, and for their vision. And so, so yeah. you know, that's a very personal thing. So sometimes mm-hmm. an audience or criticism has to catch up, has to reassess. I mean, it's it's important to do that with any artist. Well, look Precisely. at the Bolivian architect at the end of the movie. It's right when he doesn't give a fuck that they're like, oh, Krakow is the greatest. Krakow is so good. Right. And then they start acknowledging his worth. Right. Yeah. And you know it's it's kind of weird to draw a parallel. Musicians, people really don't start coming out of the woodwork until after they're dead. Yeah. And you know, without doubt, no question, no question. It's interesting to draw parallels between filmmaking and architecture, which couldn't be farther apart in a lot of ways. But the way this film presents it as you know your your life's worth is measured by your accomplishments and yeah. this is a film about an architect who has not accomplished much but so much goes into the that there's so much necessary behind the scenes work into just making a building or making a film and you know in the end we look at what what is left whether it be 
left as a building or left as a film, and we don't think too much about all the work that went into the making of this. And, you know, unrealized accomplishments should still be considered accomplishments in a lot of way. You know, there's so many films that pre-production went on for a year, and then the film never got made. But they built sets, they did, uh, they did costumes, they did all this, and then all of a sudden there's no film. But yet so much was accomplished in the, in the effort of, make, of bringing this to the world. The fact that it was never finalized doesn't mean that there was an accomplishment behind it. Yeah, like uh, the man who uh, killed Don Quixote. Yeah, that's a great. Yeah, the legend of the making of that film is so big that it not only inspired a finished movie, which Gilliam finally got to do, it inspired a movie about how he didn't make the movie. <laughs> yeah, I think that the the Lost in La Mancha, that documentary, is one of the greatest depictions of the frustrations of being an artist. Yes, I agree. I agree. To work so hard and to accomplish so much, and in the end, it looks to the world like you accomplished nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very yeah. true. And this is the first time I've seen it in a while, and I love this a lot better. Not because Denny he died; it's just that, well, other things personal, and just getting to really absorb the film with someone who's intelligent. Not someone who goes, this film is slow, I don't understand it. Right. And I think this is a movie that, um, like a lot of Greenaway films, but this one in particular, I think not only your age, but your life experience as a viewer plays such a large part in how you receive the film. When you watch oh, I agree this movie, with that. When you watch this movie as a young person, you're going to see you're going to see it as basically a tragic downfall. Whereas if, you know, as you get older and you had more experiences in life, you're going to see this as a reflection of the human condition and be able to identify it with, with it on a lot more levels. Yeah. Agreed. I love movies like that, that you can reassess throughout your own life and, and get more and more out of them. Yeah. Do you remember what we said about possession? There's two times in your life you see it. Once when you're young and innocent and you haven't gone through a bad breakup and the movie is mm-hmm. just this confusing piece of shit. Yeah. And then there's yeah. after you've been through a horrible rip your soul out, guts on the floor breakup, then the movie makes complete and utter sense. Yeah, it certainly does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, thank you for being on this show, and thank you to Brian Denny. I wish that you would have gotten more movies like this. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, this is this is a testament for those of us who never had the privilege to see Dennehy act on stage, the the amount of passion and pathos that he could bring to a role that perhaps other films like, you know, Cocoon or... or First Blood and things like that just didn't allow. Mm-hmm. But without well, Dennehy's participation... Well, yeah, that's true, too, isn't it? It was a different mm-hmm. movie. 
Yeah, but I'll I'll say one thing about Dennehy. If 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 you're gonna look for another film, by all means, check out Bestseller. His work with uh, James Wood. Yeah, with James Wood. That was a great film. That one's really often overlooked. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And thank you to you guys. We'll see Carl tomorrow for whatever we do. I haven't got anything lined up yet. And thank you, Tony, for being on here. Thank you, thank you again. Good Lord. (laughs) Well, thank you for not only inviting me back on, but actually doing a show on a Greenaway film because I... I kind of perceive Greenaway with a level of fanaticism that a lot of people would attribute to people like Da Vinci and Michelangelo and Rembrandt. I think that all of us are privileged. All of us are very privileged to be alive while this amazing artist is, is bringing a, a, a kind of art into the world that so many other people just can't even accomplish. And I think years from now, people are going to look back and say, wow, it's amazing that we were alive while Greenaway was making art. And yeah. mm-hmm. I think he's he's going to go down in history as one of the greatest artists who ever lived. Yeah, and in my generation, well, our generation, Tony, Greenway, you cannot talk about filmatic history of the late 80s, early 90s without mentioning Greenway, if not just for his help in abolishing the old, well, trying to abolish the old archaic mm-hmm. rating system. Yeah, absolutely, and he is—he is a cat—he is, a, he is a, every bit as much a catalyst to the progression and evolution of cinema as, say, industrial light and magic. You know, they're yeah. they're in completely different categories, but he is definitely one of the figures that is causing the evolution of film. And sometimes, as we talked about earlier, you don't see that kind of thing until hindsight gives you the benefit of doing so. Do you think that... Guys, I'm I'm, going to need to get out of here, okay? Uh, Yeah, All right, so I'll talk to you guys later. Tony, it was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Such a great pleasure. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, you and your cigarettes. No, there are other things going on. All right. Okay, All right. Bye. Well, I hope everything's good with you, Carl. Stay healthy. Uh, well, All right, Steve. Up, well, do thanks. you think that we would have gotten, be able to get movies with the visual strength of, like, Lord of the Rings, the Marvel movies, the more epic ones, without Prospero's books and him taking those chances to show those epic images like he does in that movie? Right. And no, I don't I don't think that modern cinema would be where it's at without some of these contributions that are to this day unacknowledged and by I, I shouldn't say completely unacknowledged. A lot of people do recognize it. But the fact that Peter Greenaway said, Well look, multimedia is a thing, why can't we bring that into cinema? And look what he did with Prospero's books. Yeah. He he ushered in a whole new era of multimedia in cinema. Let's see. I think uh, the Criterion Collection has the falls, and there's a whole bounty of his films on Amazon Prime. So while we're all stuck in, go watch stuff like 
uh, The Baby of Macon, which was a band title until not too many years ago over here. Yes, absolutely true. And, there's and now you can watch it for free work. on Prime. A Z and Two Knots. If you're a Cronenberg fan, you haven't seen a Z and Two Knots, you're not a Cronenberg fan. Yeah, you owe it to yourself to see a Z and Two Knots. That yeah. is that is probably the greatest thing that Greenaway brought uh, out and in I'll his career so far. And I'll see you guys in two hours when me and Fred do Fear No Evil. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in... I'll see you in two hours. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I'm a dead man. <laughs> All right. Take care, Steve. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.